Welcome to Writers on the Beat, where crime writers meet crime fighters. I'm your host, Gavin Reese, and I'm proud to be part of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Every episode of this podcast will bring in a variety of experts to help all writers incorporate more authentic cops, crime, and criminals in their stories. For this episode, D.P. Lyle, M.D., steps into the interrogation room just to clear a few things up about murder. Douglas was raised in Huntsville, Alabama, where his childhood interest revolves around football, baseball, and building rockets in his backyard, which was uh, kind of a common practice in the 50s and 60s youth growing up in the shadow of NASA's Marshall Space Flight Center. He attended the University of Alabama for college, medical school, and an internship, followed by a residency in the internal medicine at, I'm sorry, residency in internal medicine at the University of Texas in Houston, a fellowship in cardiology at the Texas Heart Institute, and for the past 40 years, he's practiced cardiology in Orange County, California. Douglas is an Amazon number one bestseller, and his nonfiction references for crime writers have earned awards from McCavity and Benjamin Franklin, two Edgar Awards, as well as a Seamus, an Agatha, an Anthony, a Scribe, two USA Today Best Book Awards, and a nomination for Forward Indies Book of the Year. Douglas's fiction works include the Samantha Cody, Dub Walker, and Jake Longley thriller series, and the upcoming Kane Harper thriller series, as well as the Royal Pains media tie-in novels. His essay on Jules Verne's The Mysterious Island appears in Thrillers 100 Must Reads, and his short story Even Stephen appears in the international thriller writer's anthology called Thriller 3, Love is Murder. He served as an editor for the Southern California Writers Association short story anthology, It's All in the Story, as well as contributing the story Splash. His short story, Bottom Line, appears in the Sherlock Holmes-inspired anthology for the sake of the game. Douglas has also worked as a technical advisor for numerous novelists, as well as writers of popular TV shows such as Law & Order, CSI Miami, Diagnosis Murder, Monk, Judging Amy, and many others. He's the creator and host of the podcast, Criminal Mischief, The Art and Science of Crime Fiction, which also appears here on the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. And he's also co-hosted crime and science radio on suspense radio with jan burke his latest fiction installment sunshine state launches on may 21st and douglas i want to thank you for coming in to speak with me today i'm I'm confident after all that the listeners have a clear understanding (laughs) of who the expert is on this conversation i don't know about that but thanks for having me i don't get invited many places and never more than once (laughs) (laughs) perfect well good to be here I'll be happy to be the first guy to welcome you back again. Okay. I can already tell we're going to get along just fine. Um, so I, I've really enjoyed you, your nonfictions and your podcast, and recently just uh, started reading Sunshine State. Um, that's my first intro to the Jake Longley series. For, for readers who are new to you and new to your writing, what should they know about Jake Longley and about this new release? Well, it's, this is the third in the series, and uh, they're kind of comedic thrillers. Um, I, I always wanted to write funny stuff. I have humor through all of my thrillers, even even the dark ones, the Dub Walker ones. Some of them were pretty dark, but there was always humor in there. And it's usually what I'd call situational humor, where it's it's interaction of the characters and something. Somebody says something, somebody does something, and humor breaks out. And that's kind of the way life is in medicine, and I think cops feel the same way, the dark yeah. humor. Um, doctors sitting around a, di- a dining table with other people will say something and laugh about it. Other people are horrified. You know, and it's like, that's not funny. Oh, yeah, yeah, you had to be there. It was hysterical. But yes. uh, 
that kind of thing. So I like that kind of humor. And um, so anyway, so I started this series uh, with Deep Six and then A-List, and now this is Sunshine State. And the fourth one has already finished, and it'll be out next April. So uh, it just uh, it's a lot of fun. It's, it's a lot of fun writing it. Jake is a great character, and I have a lot of fun with it. Now, what uh, what got you started writing technical advisement or, or being a technical advisor and putting reference guides together for authors? Well, um, you know, if, if you're a physician and you go to a cocktail party, people want to talk about their cholesterol and their, you know, their gallbladder. <laughs> but if you uh, if you go to a writer's conference, they want to know about poisons and gunshot wounds and dead bodies. And uh, so I started, you know, answering questions for people. And uh, it's... Uh, I'm not in the forensic world. You know, I, I don't work in the forensic world. Mm -hmm. I've never worked in a forensic lab or I'm not a forensic pathologist or any of that stuff. I don't know anything about that stuff. And I am not qualified to speak as an expert on that stuff. But I do know science and I do understand forensic science. And it's exactly the same as medical science, only a little different. Mm -hmm. It's looking at it through the law. But the difference between pharmacology and toxicology is zero. They're both the same science. And so uh, I educated myself in all that and then started answering questions for writers. And, uh, you know, I'm from Alabama, so I only know like 22 words. And, and so I can keep I can keep things very simple and, and explain things that are complex in very simple terms and then help people use it in their story because, well, I also write stories. So that combination has kind of helped. So I've been doing it for God over 20 years now. Well, I, I appreciate your humility. Uh, I think you've already used 22 words just in that sentence. <laughs> As as a as a professional, what are what are your biggest pet peeves that authors and screenwriters get wrong, or that you keep seeing them get wrong over time? Well, I'm pretty forgiving when it comes to not understanding some of the science and all that, because sometimes it can get a little dry and a little a little confusing, and and then the right answer is not always the right answer. Mm -hmm. But when you can tell um, they've made an easy jump from point A to point B that it's too contrived in a story, and that's when I lose a story. Uh, spend a little more time, work it out a little better. Coincidences are allowed, but only one per book, as they say. Um, I will say in writing comedic thrillers, you got a lot more leeway, because stupid stuff can happen in, in this, this slapstick, you know, crazy world. But in writing real hard, hard-boiled or, or hard thrillers, make the story make sense, make the characters behave like they're supposed to behave. And I, I think that bothers me more than, than people messing up the science. Yeah. And I, I've, I, I, I have obviously advocate for, for authenticity and, in, in writing. And that's really a, a lot of the theme of the show, but um, you know, it, on the day to day, if, if writers tried to, document a truly accurate police investigation or a truly accurate forensic investigation, like 98% of it would just be boring, mundane, monotonous and jargon. Um, exactly. You know, and so writers definitely, I think need to take some liberty in at least expediting things, um, processes, returns, those kind of things. But it's, it's always, you know, really surprising to me. Like, you know, when you'll be watching a show and like you said, there's some kind of leap, you know, that they, Mm -hmm. They found A, and somehow A already got them to L, you know, when right. rationally and realistically it just can't happen that way. And and in fiction, you know, the cops and the PIs get along better than they probably do in real <laughs> life. But, but you know, that, that war between the police and a PI, you know, I could use mm -hmm. that in every one of my books. I choose not to. 
sure. because I think it's become a cliche and I mm-hmm. think it becomes tedious and boring. You know, we don't care. We know you don't like each other. We don't care, but you're going to work together because, hey, you got a common enemy. Mm-hmm. So, you know, bite the bullet and, and buck up, bucko. And uh, and so I like that relationship better. And most of the books that I read out there, that, that's kind of where it ends up. So you have a lot of poetic license in, in this stuff. You really do. Uh, and remember, at the end of the day, if it's believable, it's believable. You know, we bought yeah. Star Wars. You know, <laughs> and none of that stuff can happen. Yeah, yeah, you know? <laughs> we're, we're still buying it, you know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so um, on, on authentic characters, um, one of the things that it's come up a several, several times throughout the, this podcast series, uh, I, I've never worked as a homicide detective. I've worked homicides, um, and I've been around some of those investigations that I, I've personally responded to or done follow-up on. But I've never had the burden of being the guy who's responsible for apprehending right. the, 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 the murder suspect. And I would have to imagine that the actual emotional burden of working in forensics, um, being that medical examiner, that coroner, um, would be equally burdensome for for authors who are trying to trying to make those characters three dimensional and authentic instead of just that kind of two dimensional caricature that you see in a lot of shows that you know it's like this robotic coroner robotic medical examiner. Um, mm-hmm. What kind of recommendations would you have for them to make that character more authentic, more three dimensional? Well, I, I think I would always remember what I, I like to call the Michael Connolly rule, and Michael Connolly once said, you know. It's not the effect of the cop on the crime. It's the effect of the crime on the cop. Mm. And and I think if you keep that in the back of your mind and you remember that all these people are people and remember they're people first, this just happens to be their job. And so, sure, you know, I mean, as a physician, you know, and especially as a cardiologist, you get involved in some horrific situations mm-hmm. and you can't engage that that internal emotional thing at that time. You cannot do it. You might do it later. But if you do emotion, you know, you get all freaked out and emotional about things, you're missing stuff. Well, the coroner's the same way. And sure, it smells. It's awful. I mean, it's an awful job. It's an awful job. There's nothing fun about autopsy. But he looks at it as it's an academic uh, puzzle-solving endeavor. It's his job. Now, when he goes home, you know, that's a different story. When he goes to bed at night and he's trying to fall asleep, that's a different story. And so remember to humanize these people. Remember they have problems too. They got arthritis and kids that act up and a car with a, you know, the broken fuel pump, and they got the same problems you do. Uh, and so use that stuff. Use that stuff. Make them real, real, real people with real problems, and try to avoid making everybody an alcoholic. Yeah, <laughs> it's not it's not quite that bad, but yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Uh, I was talking to Mark Cameron earlier today, and just kind of offhanded the. The subject of, of cop anxiety dreams comes up, and it, it just our conversation reminded me of this. So um, for the, the benefit of the audience, um, there's what we internally and I guess in the, the field of psychology refer to as the universal cop dream, and it's an anxiety uh-huh. dream where usually cops have one of a couple varieties. And the versions that I have um, or had, I haven't had them in, in, in a little while now, but uh, one version is I'm in a gunfight and I'm getting shot at, but not yet shot. I've got my gun out and I'm squeezing this trigger for all I can and it won't pull. I cannot make that gun fire. And then I start taking rounds and I wake up. 
The second version of that dream is I'm in a fist fight. I'm just getting my ass kicked, just getting plowed over. And I'm hitting the guy with everything I can. And it's like, I'm throwing cotton balls at him. Mm -hmm. So I tell you all that to tell you this or ask you this, is there a, something similar in the medical profession that you know of in forensics and cardiology among doctors that's like this universal doctor anxiety dream? Not, not that I know of. I know that, you know, very similar. I, I, when you first ask the question, I'm sitting there thinking it's always you're trying to get away or you're trying to get somewhere. It's like the, somebody comes, somebody goes. It, it, it's almost like a dichotomy, the two edges of the sword. And my dreams, my anxiety dreams, when I get, I don't remember most of my dreams, thank God, because I can't imagine what goes on in there. Uh, I'm either trying to get away from someone and I can't for some reason. The space is getting smaller, the ground's getting too slippery, the hill's getting too steep, whatever. Or I'm trying to get to someone to help them, and I can't get there. Mm. Whatever you do, it, you're, they're still out of reach. Often things like mine shafts and crawl spaces come to mind, wow. you know, and those things. But it's always that. You're either trying to get away or you're trying to get to. And mm. uh, I think we all have those anxieties. I think those are life anxieties. You know, if you think yeah. about it, you know, somebody once famously said, you spend the first 40 years of your life trying to, you know, catch the bear, and then you spend the next 40 years trying to run from it. And, <laughs> and, and that's kind of life. You know, yeah. you, you get to where you want to get, and then you realize, whoa, dude, mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> this, this is tough. <laughs> now, as a, as a technical advisor on with this just litany of, of work under your belt. Have you, have you ever gotten questions, uh, somebody coming to you for technical advice that you didn't want to answer or that struck out to you as like too odd to be benign? Yeah, I, I've had a few like that. And um, you just kind of know. Mm -hmm. You just kind of know. It, it, there's, a, there's a smell, a ring, a feel to it that you say that there's more to this than, than this. And so I always politely write back and say, well, you know, there's a million answers to your question, and I can help you a whole lot more if you give me the details of your story. Give me more details, and then I can focus in on what I need to answer. And, you know, a lot of old didn't do that. In fact, 95% of them will do but every now and then I won't hear from anybody again. I've gotten, I got a package from a prison in Texas from this woman. It was 30 pages. Wow. Block printed hand with color drawings and everything of how she wanted me to help her beat the, her murder rap uh -huh. and that she didn't really mean to kill the person that got axed 11 times. <laughs> oh yeah. And there were crime scene drawings and all this stuff. I still got it. You know, I did not respond. It went to my office because I think she just saw that I had written forensics for dummies and she thought I could help her. But it didn't come to my home. If it got to my home, I'd have really gotten freaked out. I'd actually call the prison. But yeah. it didn't. It went to my office. I just ignored it. Now, murder in, uh, in real life doesn't always have a whole lot in common with how those crimes and investigations are fictionalized. When no. you're writing thrillers, how do, how do you balance the authenticity of... I guess the reality that, you know, the spouse is always the first suspect um, with reader expectations that they want to follow along on this legit thriller or mystery. Yeah, you know, that's that's the hard part. Uh, I call it the order of information. And what is in what order are you going to give the reader the information they need to know? Because you do not want them to come to the, you know, 1158 and then suddenly the murder is revealed to be the twin or the whatever. Mm -hmm. And it's like, no. No, that's not possible. I didn't miss that many clues. Or 
they figure it out, you know, in the first third of the book. Uh, unless you're writing a thriller course where you're going back and forth between the bad guy and the good guy. Sometimes you know who did it. It's just how you're going to catch them. And that's fine. I love those stories. I love those kinds of stories. But if you're writing a mystery and you want to keep it somewhat secret, it's got to be inevitable but not predictable. And uh, that comes from the order of information. When do you give what? And at the end of the day, less is probably a, is probably more up mm-hmm. to a point. And that's that balancing act, man, I wish I had the magic bullet for that. It's hard. Yeah. To me, that's the hardest part of writing. Yeah, and I think that's one of the things that, that makes um, make uh, appeals to me to write thrillers as opposed to mysteries. I, I think writing the mystery is so much tougher. Um, oh, I do to, too. To yeah. me, it's like I think you'd almost have to start backwards um, and to really put the thing together well. Um, and I, I'm that's too much work for me. I, I'm a low-hanging fruit kind of guy, you know? Yeah, 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 exactly. I'm working on the second Kane Harper book right now, and you know from chapter two who the bad guys are. Mm, yeah. The question is, is how are you going to find them? How are you going to track them down? How are you going to prevent them from doing what they're trying to do? Now, and that's why I like those stories. Yeah. yeah I, I, I mean, one, one of my favorite books that I ever read ever was The Day of the Jackal. You know, that keeps and coming you, up a You lot knew who the bad guy was from the beginning, but it was like, how is he going to find this guy? And is he going to find him in time? Those those are great stories. Yeah, you know, it's it's really interesting to me how, as I'm interviewing more and more of, of uh, you successful authors, um, how many of you really are so heavily invested in the classics in the thriller genre that – you know, it's um, it's like you guys have read the entire library and are just now putting out work based on it. It's 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 incredible. Oh, you have to read. Uh, if you uh, you cannot, you know, you cannot write if you don't read. And I read a lot. I read all the time. But I will tell you this: the first four or five books I wrote, I did not read while I was writing them because I would find those books creeping in mm-hmm. to my style, to my word choice, to my language, all this stuff. But that's because I hadn't found my voice. Mm-hmm. I hadn't found my confidence and my strengths and weaknesses. And I hadn't found how I'm going to put things on page. Once you find that, and once you're comfortable in your own skin, as it were, then you can read all the time and it does not affect you. And yet you're learning from every book you read. I mean, James Lee Burke and Elmore Leonard are to me are, are my two gods. I mean, I've read everything they've written. And, and and for two different reasons, you know, one's poetic and the other's gritty, but they're both wonderful writers and you learn something from every paragraph. Yeah, you know, and I'm I'm just young enough that the, the first thriller I ever read was uh, was Hunt for Red October. And, yep. you know, just now as, you know, a middle aged adult ish, adult ish, <laughs> am I yeah. just now going back and really picking up a lot of the a lot of the classics, probably the, you know, uh, I think the first true police procedural I ever read was uh, um, was a, a, a Wombok um, Centurions or the New Centurions. Yeah, yep. Um, yep, that yeah. was a good one. Yeah, and the only reason I read that is because the uh, the lieutenant at my police academy walked in one day and was chastising us because none of us knew who Joseph Wombok was. So I had yeah. to go find out, you know. Um, well, well, I always tell people, if you want to write thrillers, you need to read one book and you need to watch one movie. And the book is uh, Red Dragon, Thomas Harris's first Hannibal Lecter yeah. book. And it's the book is brilliant. It's perfect. 
the, the story's perfect. It's beautifully written. And the movie is Terminator. Terminator mm-hmm. is, is the perfect thrower. It, it, the timing, the, the scene, the cuts, mm-hmm. the character arc of Sarah Connor, the whole story and the way it's put together and the way it's laid out and the suspense that through that whole thing, that's how you do it. That's how you do a thriller right there. So, um, you know, I tell everybody to do it. <laughs> Those yeah. two. Now, how do you, um, how do you try to balance your authenticity and expertise in your writing without letting your work or your reference guides kind of become a, a PhD for someone trying to get away with murder? <laughs> I'd put a disclaimer because, <laughs> uh, you know, it's interesting. They had this, you might remember, they had this big bank heist or they took millions of dollars over in London, maybe 10 or 12 years ago. It's where they took over a, a business next door and tunneled through the floor in the back room and down the street and up through the bank. And it took them like a month to do the thing. And then they went out on a weekend and took millions of dollars and emptied all the safety deposit boxes. And then, you know, of course, then they got caught months later. Well, when they went to one of the guys' place to arrest him, he had a copy of Forensics for Dummies on his shelf. <laughs> and I saw that. And actually, got somebody sent me a note on that. And I said, well, he didn't get the updated version, the second version. Yes. You know? <laughs> <laughs> but um, and I've, I've gotten over the years, I've gotten two or three uh, emails from, from police officers who have said that they've arrested people who had that book. Well, oh, wow. you know, give me a break. Yeah, there's so much more. To, there's so much more to it than that, yeah. and and one yeah. of those things is luck. <laughs> yeah, you know, and it's you know, I think one of the things you know, there there really is, you know, there really is no perfect crime, I guess, unless it's the one you nope. get away. But um, you know, to uh, for somebody to be able to to actually get away and do everything right to ensure they're never caught is is basically impossible. I mean, it, it's it's so yeah. difficult, and even. The guys, the, you know, all the serial killers that are now being identified because of these ancestry uh, DNA companies. Sure, I mean, are the ones like you know the Grim Sleeper and all that. That, that mm-hmm. but they uh, here in LA, they remember they did their crimes 30 years ago and DNA mm-hmm. wasn't around, so they didn't yep. even know. So what are they doing now that in 15, 20 years is going to crop up and say, well, I didn't know about that, you know, because science marches on. So, yes. Yeah. So what does your research process look like um, for things that even you have to look out, look outside your own box to get help with? How do you go well, about finding out things you don't know? I'll look, I'll look it up or I'll, you know, send somebody an email and ask them a question. But for the most part, it has to do with geography and has to do with uh, different procedures and has to do with architecture and stuff mm-hmm. you know i have to look things like that up because i either put in a real town or i create a town that's based on a real town or something um and 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 it's those things like the royal pains books i mean i've had several people come up to me and said boy you really captured the hamptons you must spend a lot of time i've never been to the hamptons in my life <laughs> you know but i watched all the tv shows and then i went and went to went to you know maps you know the google mm-hmm. maps and all that stuff and then i went to the real estate pages and i went to the restaurant and bar pages you go to their website it's amazing what you can get a feel for a place yeah. and then create locales for the story that way yeah even the the layout of that restaurant the layout of the bar the, the everything decorated and built and yeah what the decor is what the menu is what kind of people go there where it's located you can find all that stuff 
And then you can get a map and see what the surrounding area looks like. You know if there's a dirt road over here. You know if there's a gravel road. You know if there's a fence of some kind. Uh, you know if there's beach or the beaches. You know, you know, you know all this stuff. And you do that just looking at maps. And then that gives you a feel for the area, and then you just start writing about it. But uh, I do most of my research as it goes along. Wait a minute. I know what now. Would this happen there? Do they have a Starbucks in Georgia? In Georgia? <laughs> I mean, of course they did. They had several on the moon, probably. But yeah, you know. But I, but I didn't know. And I had them going to the Starbucks in Rome, Georgia. So I Google Starbucks Rome, Georgia. Yeah, there's a half a dozen there. I said, okay. I didn't uh, on, put it where they were, but it didn't matter. <laughs> now, on uh, kind of kind of a similar note, we've had you know with the the other cops that have come on the on the show over the past a couple dozen episodes the. You know, one of the common recurring themes for for people to get research in um, on the cop side of things is to go to you know volunteer at the police department or to mm-hmm. you know attend a citizens academy um, or you know like Lee Laughlin's writers academy. Um, right. For someone who wanted to try to get that level of authenticity or that kind of relationship with a medical professional or a forensic scientist, how would they go about doing that similar thing? Uh, that's difficult. Lee's thing and some of the other things do offer some a lot of forensic science and especially in ballistics and things like that. Um, you know, autopsies. It used to be that you could, you could sit in on one, not so much anymore with all the new rules and regulations. Yeah. Uh, you have to. You have, everybody knows somebody, and so just ask questions and then go on the internet and read articles and look at who wrote them and where they're from, and and never underestimate the power of the word author. Mm-hmm. Uh, people want to talk about what they know. So give them a chance to do that. And I've found people will bend over backwards to, to, to help you. If you just ask, you know, I'm writing this story and I don't understand this. And I think you understand how, what does this look like? How does this work? People will bend over backwards to help you. So don't ever be afraid of that. Um, don't tell them you're a newspaper reporter. Just tell them, <laughs> tell them you're writing fiction. <laughs> totally different response, right? Yeah. Now, one of the other recurring themes of this podcast is that it only takes about a decade of blood, sweat, and tears to become an overnight success. And exactly. what what has your growth and development been like as an author, moving from you know inspiration to published writer to critically acclaimed author? Well, yeah, I always wanted to, to, to write, I thought, and uh, but I never had the time, and uh, I wasn't very good. I couldn't write a letter at all. I still can't write a letter. I don't know what to say. Hi, how are you? <laughs> uh, I'm done. Um, so um, I, I'd always wanted to. Now, I grew up in the South. So I could spin a yarn. Everybody in the South can spin a yarn or they won't feed you. But uh, I didn't know if I could write one. So I guess about 25 years ago, uh, I took some night classes over here at UC Irvine, which has a great writing program, a uh, wonderful writing program. Thomas Keneally ran it for a while. Saul Stein ran it for a while. T. Jefferson Parker came out of there. Uh, but it's, it's, uh, it, I took a couple of classes and I joined a couple of writer groups and I just started writing. Okay, fine. So it took me two and a half years to write my first book and I sent it to my agent. She wasn't my agent then, Kimberly Cameron, the greatest agent on earth. And she's been my agent my entire career. But this was before we knew each other, but we'd never, and I'd always told her I'd work on a book and I'll send it to you. She said, I want to see it. So I sent it to her and she sent it back and she said, uh, there's a story in here somewhere. I just can't find it. Mm. And I said, that's what I want to hear. 
But she said, but I'll read it again. Well, to make a long story short, then we started, it was five more years before we published some stuff. And then I went back and sent her that book again 10 years later. And it was two-thirds the size and 10 times better. And she said, wow. yes, now it's ready. But uh, you have to hear that. And if you don't want to get hit in the head, go do something else. You know, because you're going to get hit in the head as a writer. Yeah, you know, and I think that's something I I expected, I, I think a little bit, but I didn't really appreciate how much, you know, you're putting out mm -hmm. a piece of your soul for mm -hmm. criticism on the internet, which is one of the ugliest places in all of humanity. Yeah, um, exactly. You know, people, you know, are not a place where they mince words and, and care about, you know, sugarcoating or feelings. So, you know, um, I think that's something you really need to be aware of. And you also need to be able to take constructive criticism, you know. Yeah, um, yeah exactly. And there, James Lee Burke took a long time to get uh, to, to get published. And so did Dean Koontz. And mm -hmm. Dean Koontz was just a few months away from giving it up when he sold his first book. Of course, he had like 10 books in the drawer after that, that time. And they said, what else you got? He said, oh, well, I'm glad you asked. <laughs> but the point is, is that these great writers couldn't get things published. But once they did, then, then their careers took off because, well, they were good. It's just they weren't discovered. And boy, mm -hmm. I, I don't know what the magic bullet there is. There's, you know, there's luck involved in everything in sure. life, and this is yeah. sure one of them. Yeah, you know, I think it's it's just literally you know, being at the right place in front of the right agent at the right time when mm -hmm. the right publisher is looking for your genre and mm -hmm. fit the mold. You know, it's, it is. A, and I think a, your job as a writer is to create the best story, the best product that you can. And that gives you the best chance of someone saying, oh, I like this. Mm -hmm. And I always tell people the single most important thing. It's not the characters. It's not the plot. It's not the that. It's voice. It's how you tell your story in your own voice. And that's the thing you got to learn. And you learn that by writing like your mother's dead yeah. and killing that editor. <laughs> you know, tell the story the way you want to tell it. And your voice is much better than the one you try to create. Get out of the way. As, as what is it, Hemingway said, right? Drunk, edit sober. Yep. <laughs> and there's some truth to that. Yes. <laughs> Not necessarily drunk. But what he meant was free. Yes. Yep. Well, he definitely meant drunk, but also for Yeah, he probably did. <laughs> I think he dr he drank later when the one perfect sentence wasn't in there. <laughs> yes. Yeah. You know, I, I um, he he's come up in my personal life in some conversations a couple times. So I, I can't I have to look this up, but I can't remember which book it was. And I keep saying that it might have been a movable feast, but one of his books he rewrote like forty times. Yeah. Um, and that's on a typewriter. You know, or yeah, oh, yeah. You yeah. Know, so if you change enough on that page, you're rewriting the chapter. <laughs> so, oh, yeah, yeah, know. exactly. Exactly. That's, but that's, that's the way he was. He was yeah. meticulous about everything. And it's probably why he killed himself. He, he, he ground so hard at doing it. So, mm -hmm. you know, the other advice that is don't forget to have fun. This is supposed to be fun. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's supposed to be a, a a a benefit to this, you know. You're supposed right. to be getting the out. I think. You know? It certainly isn't monetary, so you better have fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Now, I, I think we've already managed to answer just about everything else I have on my sheet here, but I've got a couple of, uh, last questions that I, I ask yeah. everybody who comes on the show, and I think I already know the answer, but I'll, I'll give you 
give you a shot at this anyway. Um, who are your, right now, who are your favorite fictional investigators in books, TV, or film? Um, there's, uh, there's quite a few of them, actually. Uh, you know, I like Elvis Cole, and uh, mm-hmm. I love the, uh, the Bob Cray stuff. I mean, they write great stuff. Of course, Ari Bosch is great. Mm-hmm. Uh, T. Jefferson Parker's got a whole new character whose name is escaping me right now. In his last three books, that is fantastic. Oh, I'll think of it in a minute. Uh, oh, it came and went. I'm getting old. Um, and I, lo- I love Jeff Parker's work. He's one of my favorite writers. And, and every time I read one of his books, I learn so much. Um, those are the ones that, that, that pop in my head right now. Um, there's so many great characters out there. Wow. You know, over the last 70 years, there's so many. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, I wrote that short story for for the uh, uh, Sherlock Holmes anthology, I said, I better go back and read some Sherlock books, you know, and I <laughs> yeah. like him. He's mm-hmm. a jerk. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> he's house. Yes. I don't like house and he's house. You know? yeah. <laughs> he's mean to everybody. Yeah. Yeah. So now, keep, keeping that massive, I, I guess, uh, crowd answer there in, in mind, God forbid. Roland, Roland is uh, Roland. T. Jefferson Parker's character. He's great. He's fantastic. Okay. Sorry. Go ahead. No, uh, God, forbid, God forbid it should happen, Doug. But if you, were to wake yeah, up, exactly. if you were to wake up tomorrow and find yourself murdered, would you want Jake Longley or one of these other investigators working your case? Uh, I'll probably Jake because he's stumbled on the right answer just by accident. <laughs> <laughs> he's actually pretty clever. He just doesn't know it or doesn't care. But he, he always seems to stumble on the right answer. <laughs> well, I, uh, where can fans uh, connect with you and find your your works? Maybe uh, an, an email, a blog, any way that they can connect with you and your technical. Yeah, advice. if you go to my website, which is uh, dp dot com, If you go to that, it'll connect you to the radio show, the podcast, my blog, all my books. You know, all the insanity that goes on in there. But that, that's kind of the gateway to everything. And just uh, just not the home address so we can send our 30 pages of a crayon. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> crayon drawings of the person you just killed. <laughs> I, I genuinely appreciate you coming on, Doug. And if, if I'm Anytime. the first to ask you back a second time, I'd be honored to do that, sir. Oh, I've, I've got another one coming out in October. Maybe we can do it again. <laughs> that sounds perfect. We'll get a book. Right. Thank you. you. Thank you. You've been listening to Writers on the Beat, where crime writers meet crime fighters, a copyrighted broadcast of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. I'm your host, Gavin Reese, and this guest, this episode's guest has been critically acclaimed best-selling author, technical advisor, and professional cardiologist, D.P. Lyle, M.D. Until next time, take care of yourselves and each other. Be safe out there. <laughs>